Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're literally not taught how to save our money, invest our money, or stay invested, which are my three index card ingredients to get from point A to point B in your life. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. Today's show is a little different. My guest, Michelle Bagina, is a financial advisor, speaker, author, and, at least in my own opinion, a money therapist. With a great deal of intentional vulnerability and discomfort on my part, we do talk about money. It doesn't just make the world go round, it's a topic that unites everyone, and like math, is a universal language where judgment, stigma, guilt, and the forces of good and evil duke it out every day. In the interest of channeling my fellow expatriated nonprofit founders and executives who went into the private sector like me to, quote, earn a living, end quote, there's a lot to unpack there. And I'm not shy about sharing my own personal sentiments on entrepreneurship, philanthropy, and guilt. The nonprofit business model is just so damn flawed, it's almost designed to fail, and COVID made that so much more apparent. I don't live my life to be the richest guy in the cemetery and hedge my entire political belief system on the single voter issue factor of our time, the 401k. Life's just too damn short. So from financial psychology to your money story to the fiscal script to the emotional weight and mental health issues surrounding leadership and just trying to get by in life while doing well and doing good, that's the show. I hope you enjoy this alternate but related universe episode of Out of Patience with Michelle Bagina. Enjoy. Welcome to Out of Patience, Michelle. I'm thrilled to have you here for a, a unique therapy session, perhaps. <laughs> I am thrilled to be here, Matthew. I love that on your site, it says the emotional implications of money. And I think if you look, there's no like thesaurus for that, but there would be a photo of me next to that if there were a book with that turn of phrase in it. I see. Well, I'd be right there with you, side by side, photo to photo. I love that, you know, you're, you're so open and honest. I, first of all, shout out to Trisha Brooke, who introduced us. Uh, to my listeners, Trisha was on my show a couple of weeks ago, and uh, sh she's a fascinating human being in the world of helping women overcome some challenges and from getting on stage and developing their narrative and story. And Michelle, you are, a, you are the fruits of the labor of everything that Trisha has done, and I was thrilled to have been introduced to you. Oh, well, thank you, Matthew. I, I cannot speak highly enough of Trisha. You know her. Uh, your podcast listeners have had the privilege of, of listening to her and learning from her as well. She is a woman who has made me understand 
how deep speakers must go to really put their message out into the world so powerfully. It's not just speaking well and having something really fabulous and interesting to say. It's really speaking from that inside out, very deep part of yourself where the real power and punch comes from. She's really helping and teaching me all of that. And I'm a huge fan of getting uh, sort of sidelined by the right words you're not expecting. And you use the word dichotomous in your LinkedIn profile. And I was like, sold. Introduce me. Let's become <laughs> like surrogate best friends. Well, thank you. I, I had a very dichotomous childhood when it comes to money. There was more than enough and, and, yet, and yet not enough. So lots and lots of stories to, to share. My, my favorite word in the world is indomitable. And it comes from this inside part of us who knows who we are, but are not always comfortable putting ourselves out into the world. And we have to bring that indomitable spirit out into the world to achieve what we're supposed to achieve and help other people achieve what they're supposed to achieve. As opposed to the abominable snowman, this is the indomitable snowman. <laughs> Doesn't melt. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of art, so your pop culture reference of the day is that in Jurassic Park, one of the new ones, the name of the dinosaur that they invented is called the Indominus Rex. So how would you describe the nature of an Indominus Rex? Ooh. Okay, well, I have to admit, I have not seen that movie, but I totally got, got the picture. I can see the dinosaur running across the plains right now, chasing after something. Um, the Indomitable Rex. I mean, there's so many references I can make to what I do. So I should tell your listeners, I am not a therapist. I am empathetic and therapeutic when it comes to money. You're and just my therapist. Today, I am your <laughs> therapist. <laughs> An Indomitable Rex really is, uh, well, there's biology in it, right? So I mean, even just think about that being chased by the dinosaur, which I guess, you know, we're always told we were chased by woolly mammoths back in the day. So it's this uh, fight, flight, or freeze that we feel, right? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from literally having to, uh, you know, run for our lives or freeze for our lives once upon a time. That's what it makes me think of. So when I first met you, by the way, that is an accurate description, and you now belong as a screenwriter in Jurassic Park 3 when they write it. I will put in the good word for you to Spielberg. I promise. Thank you so much. When I first was made aware of you, I was triggered. And I don't overuse the word triggered because that's like the word of the day these days. But at the end of the day, I have an aversion to discussing money, not for the reasons that may be just, you know, preternatally in the heads of our listeners. But, you know, I, I think this is an episode geared more towards my nonprofit colleagues and friends, our founders who started in charity and maybe have moved on to the world of the private sector, something we're just not used to. And I've had so many chats with my peers who went from nonprofit to private sector, and, and we have guilt saying the following phrase. So this is what it's like to make a living. And it's this guilt. I may mean that. Like, we we're, are we supposed to make a living? Is it okay? Have we paid our dues? What are your thoughts on my brokering that conversation? Well, the first thing it makes me think of, Matthew, is the value system. So, so let me ask you, coming from the nonprofit world, what interested you to get into that space? What was the purpose? I, I felt that I had the opportunity to make life suck less for the next me. And the only vehicle 
having had no nonprofit experience, I was like just uh, an IT director in agencies. I, I felt like, well, it, maybe it's easier money than raising it. I wasn't like an investor person. I don't know anything about business business at the time. And it was an interesting path to figure out, can I make that dent by building something interesting? So I didn't go in there with the intention of making a living. I, I knew that you were starting out from scratch. I quit my career to do this. So I wasn't living in the unabandoned, make a million dollars getting rich in charity. I just felt it was something I could do. So driven by a higher purpose to give back. Yeah. I, I, like I believe anyone that wants to start a nonprofit does though with purpose and intention because that's the vehicle we understand to be in America. In American business, you start a charity to make a difference. Absolutely. So how did you make your living while you were working for a nonprofit? Were you able to make ends meet doing that? All right. I'm going to take a pause for a second. I'm hearing jangling on your end. I will stop moving. Silence your bangles, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> and you didn't get that on? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, Bree. Bree's our editor. Bree, figure out a way to weave in the silence your bangles, damn it. <laughs> Uh, I think your question was, um, did I expect to make money or, or how, how did I make were, money? Right? How? Yeah. Were you making a living while you were working or creating a nonprofit? So truth be told, I did not earn a salary for the first three years of creating stupid cancer. And it wasn't until 2000 and maybe 10 that there was enough revenue coming in to actually support even giving me a, a monthly stipend on a on like a 1099. And then payroll started after I hired somebody to do other development with me. Mm -hmm. So I was living out of pocket. You know, I think the organization was able to pay for like my travel. So I didn't have that expense personally, but I wasn't earning any money as the CEO of the nonprofit. Bring me back before before the nonprofit. And tell me, tell me a little bit about your money story. What was money like growing up? What did you hear? You've already told me a little bit about your parents and what they did for a living. Tell me more. Yeah. So my parents were public school educators uh, growing up, and that was our life. You know, we had summers off, went to summer camp. My parents worked at summer camp. And, you know, we lived meager. We didn't take a lot of vacations. We had a lot of quality in our local area. And Manhattan was our backdrop. So... We just went into the city and, you know, saw a Broadway show with the cheap back when Broadway was like $25 a ticket in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So, like, I remember seeing Peter Pan and Annie and, and you know, that was how we grew up. We didn't have a summer home. We didn't go to the lake for a week. Those didn't happen. We had a camper. We drove – we did the Clark W. Griswold, you know, cross-country trip every now and then. But it was – I mean, we were not ostentatious people. We didn't – there was never a sense that I got, my brother and I got, that we're here to be the richest people in the graveyard. There goes that expression I love again. It's an expression. I don't think I invented it, but I'd like to think that that is part of my ethos. Well, it sounds like you've been living that way when you think of that ethos. I mean, even this new company that I started, Offscript Media, you know, I was like, oh, when are you going to exit? I'm like, why do you think about that? Like, mm. why can't you just make a living, do your thing? and have purpose. And that's not what I'm getting a sense of people in the business world live and breathe by. I want to be proven wrong. I do believe in purpose-driven business and like Tom's Shoes and whatnot. 
and to the extent that you can do well and do good has been something I've been talking about to the corporate partners and sponsors of Stupid Cancer, and yet I can't seem to absorb that into the way I foresee my company growing. Well, well, you're making me think about our money scripts a bit. So can we go into some beliefs and that may uncover some scripts and we may crack crack a few things open? Uh, sure. Great. <laughs> I'll get my bourbon. <laughs> okay. So what I hear you talking about is taking a chance to quit your career and start a nonprofit and shifting and pivoting into doing well and doing good. You've always been doing good and maybe now you're starting to think about doing well by doing good and questioning whether or not those two things can live in harmony together. And you've talked about things like giving back, right? Which is clearly a quality that you, that you hold, that you want work that is purpose-centered. I think where I've netted out mentally in terms of reconciling where I'm at now versus where I was, my initial reaction in starting a for-profit business was that it's unfair. This was my immediate gut feeling. It was unfair that I can earn more money in a week than I did in a year as the CEO of a nonprofit organization. And it shouldn't have to be that way because it's such a limiter on the capabilities of what that nonprofit could do if there was this lack of stigma on funding the nonprofits accurately outside of, you know, having shareholders, having major donors, to the extent that it's so, they've been hiding all the zeros in the private sector that they don't have in the nonprofit. That was my initial gut feeling. I think you're right. And I think you just described, right, wanting to have this lack of stigma. So, so let's talk about the nonprofit sector for a second. So when you think about someone who is executive director of a nonprofit outside of yourself, I don't know, think about a charity and a purpose that they serve and the good that they do in the world. Can you get a picture of that? Yes. Okay. Do you want to share who or, or what you're thinking about? Well, I mean, it, I can only speak through the lens of my own personal experience in, in the sense that what Stupid Cancer was capable of doing was entirely scalable. It just was, you know, so I'm going to channel uh, one of my mentors who was on my show, who I mentioned very frequently on my show, Dan Pallotta. And everyone can Google Dan Pallotta. We'll put a link to his, his epicness in the show description along with your stuff. And, you know, he talks about that the nonprofit model is fundamentally flawed because of this idea that people don't want to fund overhead and that you don't want to have compensatory salaries to hire executives of par to the private sector and that there is such a limitation on what its potential is as a scalable business unless you're like an established institution like Harvard with its trillion dollar endowment in, the, in its nonprofit division. So I struggle with some of his sentiments that Dan talks about where I can make more of an impact now to stupid cancer as a philanthropist than I ever could have earning less money as the CEO. That's the mm -hmm. square I have trouble circling. So I think it's partly a preconceived notion, right? So I'll give you an example. When I think of a nonprofit and I think about education is something that I'm really passionate about, healthcare I'm really passionate about. I don't think about the people that work there devoting their life to that purpose any differently 
than I think about the people who work in a for-profit company and what they devote their life to. So I have an underlying belief that all business is meant to serve humanity. And yes, the people who serve humanity can get very wealthy in a capitalist country like America. And I, I don't begrudge people that, right? If you are living ethically, uh, doing things legally, and you're leaving the world a better place by way of what you do or what you've invented, and it's moving someone else further along in their journey, improving their lives, increasing their happiness. I think that's what makes an ultimate capitalist society go round. And I don't think that we think about the nonprofit world in the same way. And perhaps we need to start to redefine how we think about nonprofits, right? I. I just think about it a little bit differently, Matthew. Back with our guest after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Picking up on that last thing you just said again and channeling Dan Pallotta, the way we think about charity is all wrong. And it's refreshing to hear you say that in the spirit of all business should serve the common good. This perspective and perception that I'm going to make a donation, but I don't want it to pay your salaries. I want it to go to mission. That's a therapy moment for every nonprofit executive to have a donor say, I don't want this to pay your electric bill so you can have an office and hire talent. I want this to go to mission. But at the same time, without electricity and rent and talent, there is no mission. That's right. I want to put my money with the people who have an expertise 
about how to accomplish something that I'm passionate about from a heart-centered way, I'll give them my money to do that all day long. And they deserve to make a living to be able to do something that I don't have the time, the energy, or the know-how or capacity to do. I don't think we should begrudge people from pursuing their life's work. Right. So this is about financial psychology. And now that I've exited the nonprofit space into the private sector space with this new venture, like I said before, I will eventually have the capacity to make large philanthropic donations to charity that I couldn't do. And hopefully, and again, this goes back to a perspective of guilt that I'm now supporting. I'm happy to say, use all this money to increase the salary of your staff. And I have no problem with that because I understand that by doing that, they can hire the talent they need to do bigger things. I would love to hear from my fellow nonprofit founders who are now in the private sector. There are many of us. How have you squared that circle? How have you reconciled this? And what does it mean to be able to give money to the nonprofit that you started in a way that you couldn't have done running it, raising money? I think it's an important question to ask. When we spoke before the show, I uttered that phrase, you know, I don't want to be the richest guy in the graveyard. Had you ever heard anyone frame it that way before? I had not. And it's laugh out loud funny, Matthew. You know, I've heard people say you can't take it with you, but no one expressed it as colorfully as you have. Right. And uh, this episode is going to air after the election, but the narrative is still true around, you know, single voter issues is my 401k. And it comes up on both sides in every election cycle. Why is the the idea of a 401k is such a trigger for so many Americans. What, what does that stand for? Mm. I, I'm going to take some guesses here. So I take a stand for financial literacy. One thing that has changed in the last 40 years in particular is more and more of our financial decisions are in our hands. The decisions are more complex. We make them more frequently. And we are subjected to more influences around our money than we ever have been before because of social media, because of media. I could go on and on and on. So the 401k, quote unquote, has become a mainstay vehicle for many people to get prepared for retirement. And we're literally not taught how to save our money, invest our money, or stay invested which are my three index card ingredients to get from point A to point B in your life. What a lot of people don't realize is even today, over 95% of Americans who create wealth have translated the income that they earn into the wealth that resides in their homes, their 401ks, other assets that they may create investments that they have, et cetera. It's in our hands and it's complicated that it's in our hands for both the side of the equation where we need the skill and the knowledge, which is where most of financial literacy education resides, to the other side of the brain, which is where our emotions and our mindset that drive our behaviors reside. If you take two people with the same level of education around the same age, making approximately the same amount of family income, at the end of the day, one person is going to be financially ahead of the other person. The only things that account for that are decisions, mindset, and behavior. That's it. 
among many things about you, I love that you have this expression on your homepage, which will, again, we'll put a link in the description, michelleab.com, Michelle with two L's, a quiet place of reflection and soft landings to feel more at ease about your money. Again, <laughs> we're going to go back to the, the thesaurus and my photo next to that expression. I don't like talking about money. Outside of like, yeah, I mean, you're going to go brag and buy Porsches and Lamborghinis and whatever. Fine. Be that person. Be very public about fine. You got some money. Someone bought you these things. I have no aspirations for that. And and I don't know. I have no guilt about that. But I can't understand. And maybe I don't have to worry about this because I'm just neurotic. Why do people feel the need to show off being rich? First of all, Matthew, you're reading the description of michelleab.com. You read in such a way that I feel like the life's t- Lifetime channel is going to come on and the show is just starting. So thank you for that. <laughs> they say that we don't talk about our money out loud. I think that is true. But we do talk about our money. Most of it is in our head and it's a very dark place in there sometimes. And what I mean by that is we are human beings. So a lot of us normalizing our lives is is being able to share with one another the experiences that we're having so that either someone can tell us i've experienced that too that makes us feel quote unquote normal it makes us feel heard and listened to and we're just not doing that kind of stuff so you know this quiet place of reflection it's really like everything else in life it takes knowing yourself to be able to do your best in life, right? It's really understanding who you are as a person. So I'm going to go back to scripts. I'm going to talk about scripts for a second because you've talked about living a quiet life and why do some people have a need to show a you know, public display of their alleged wealth. So I talk to my kids about this all the time that The statistic has not changed. I don't tell them this part. I tell them the second part that I'm going to go into. The statistic has not changed that about 50% of Americans for as long as I can remember only have somewhere between $400 and $1,000. That number has bounced around for the last 25 years or so. In other words, half of what we see is not believable. Unfortunately, our fellow Americans many of them live paycheck to paycheck and are one emergency away from disaster. So what I tell my children when they observe the uh, visual display of wealth to just question what they're seeing and to not always believe what's above the surface. So there are what are known to be scripts and underneath the scripts are subconscious beliefs that drive our behavior about money. These were researched and put out into the world by a gentleman named Dr. Klontz. And what he has observed is we are money vigilant, which means the subconscious belief is money is meant to be private. We have money status scripts. The underlying belief is my net worth is my self-worth. That's typically the person who we visually see the representation of worth. They will only buy new. They only will buy the best and they show it. Money worship is the underlying belief that more money will fix all of my problems. And money avoidant is just as that sounds. It's actually the belief that money is bad and they avoid the topic of money. 
And that avoidance can be anything from they will never talk about it to they won't open their statements to a variety of other things. All of the subconscious beliefs are running the show if we're not aware. So that's why, you know, this quiet place of reflection, because a quiet place of refresh, reflection can be the introspective work you're doing where you're just really digging and asking. And it's it really starts with, um, well, okay, if we're going into therapy, which we're not, therapy really breaks into the subconscious, right? Just above therapy sits coaching in a therapeutic way, which is really how I like to discuss all of this. Right above that subconscious level is really understanding what are the most memorable memories you have about money? What did you make them mean? What are what are called flashpoints? What were the things that you heard growing up? So for example, did you hear you can't have everything or did you hear you can have everything? I'm actually in the camp that I heard. I heard two things growing up. What's inside? It's what's inside that counts. And you can be anyone you want to be. And those two um, scripts that my parents had and said many, many times growing up had a very, very powerful impact on me when I was around 17 years old, which I'll tell you about that story. But scripts are really running a show. And it doesn't really take a lot to dig in and take a little trip down memory lane to ask what, what are the three or four most important things that I heard from my parents growing up? Who else influenced me growing up around money? What was my socioeconomic status? What kind of neighborhood did I live in? What did other people say around money? What was the culture of the time? Did I grow up in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s? What was the popular culture and how did that impact me? All of that goes into our money story. And when we really start to think about it, sometimes we can do it just for ourselves. Sometimes we can talk it out loud with a friend. We start to see links and connections as to things that we encountered as children, what we made them believe, and how that's informing us. And if we don't do this type of work, and I, I don't mean to sound cheeky, but the truth is, if we don't do this type of work, all of these ideas and beliefs were formed at such a young age that literally the five, seven, or 10-year-old could be in charge of our financial decisions for the rest of our lives if we don't do it. That is a fascinating way to look at it, how our inner child, inner demons, inner teachings from the people who nurtured us can just carry forward. In the time we have left, I wanted to ask you, this is not a quick question, but if you perhaps have a quick answer, because I think we can continue this conversation on a future episode. A lot of my listeners are coming out of the cancer community. They're rebuilding their lives, or they may actually still be in treatment. And you know, one of our buzzwords in this space is called financial toxicity, which is why cancer makes you broke, and many people are bound by their employer benefits, and you have to split your pills because you can't afford things and drug pricing without getting into those weeds. Have you done any work in the struggling health disease consumer culture in helping people understand how they manage their finances, if they even have finances when dealing with medical crises? Not directly for those reasons, no. But the analogy I'm going to draw is I don't think it's any different than working with anyone that struggles with their money, who are intelligent, have knowledge, know where they are, know where they're going. The formula is the same. 
Michelle Bajina, financial advisor, author, and speaker, founder and gateway of Michelle AB and money therapist to me. Thank you for coming on Out of Patience. More to come. Thank you for having me, Matthew. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.